Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we hope to bring insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. I'm delighted to welcome for our first podcast, Andrea Cascelli, the outgoing Chief Executive of the Competition and Markets Authority, the UK Antitrust Agency. Andrea has been a prominent figure in European antitrust for more than 25 years, first as an economic consultant and more recently as acting head and then head of the CMA. When the CMA's history is written, the past five years will be remembered as some of the agency's most consequential. Few predicted the agency's metamorphosis into one of the world's leading and most feared antitrust agencies. Still less, but the architect of that transformation would be a softly spoken, mild-mannered, Italian-born industrial economist. So we're delighted to welcome Andrea today. Andrea, you've led the CMA through an extraordinary time. A decade ago, few would have predicted that the agency would have become one of the world's leading authorities. At what point did you realize the opportunity that Brexit created? And when you speak about Brexit giving the CMA an opportunity to do things differently, what do you have in mind? Thanks, uh, Nick, and thanks for inviting me for this podcast. So on, the, on Brexit, I mean, obviously the referendum was in 2016, and we uh, had some uncertainty, as listeners will remember, for two or three years about exactly the timing and the type of Brexit. What we did during that period was to talk to um, our international counterparts in countries like Australia, Japan, Brazil, uh, Korea, and others to to understand how they they worked alongside the major agencies with that level of independence that we didn't have before the referendum. So the idea was very much to, uh, to learn from others, understand how we could take advantage of uh, this greater freedom and at the same time to discuss with our government how to be properly funded and how to deploy the kind of institutional flexibility that we needed for that. Uh, We received quite a lot of support in terms of funding and expansion and To an extent, because of the delays with the process, we ended up having the extra funding before we got the extra cases. And that was quite important because it allowed us to be quite ambitious in terms of what we felt we could do. And so where we are now, which is a year and a half after essentially the end of the transition periods and when we were suddenly able to take our own decisions, is that we, I think we have established ourselves, as, as you say, as one of the of the key players globally, which still means spending quite a lot of time working with others, trying to coordinate matters, but at the same time, having the, I would say, the firepower and the confidence to uh, potentially go uh, independently in specific cases, if we think that's the right answer for UK consumers. So when you've spoken about Brexit, giving the CMA an opportunity to do things differently, By implication, I think you mean differently from the way you were doing things and also differently from the way the European Commission was doing things. Can you dig down a little and and explain what you mean or 
what you think the CMA can do differently has been doing differently? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, of, of skills. So as you know, we've invested quite a lot on, uh, on technologies, data scientists, uh, trying to change the way we do some of the cases. And that's obviously something we, we can do. And, and other agencies are now uh, copying or trying to implement in a similar way. Uh, but secondly, um, you know, pre-Brexit, uh, on specific cases, specific decisions, basically we had to try to influence the European Commission because the global cases were done in Brussels. And, uh, you know, cases like uh, Siemens Alstom, which was a, case, a merger case that worried us. And, um, you know, we had to influence the commission alongside other agencies because obviously there was a very strong uh, support for the transaction from some very very powerful forces within the European Union. So suddenly, um, you know, you can decide your own cases. You are not a junior partner trying to influence someone else. So I think, um, you know, Brexit has really allowed the, the CMA to, to do things differently in a fairly material way. It's probably beyond the scope of today to discuss how the withdrawal of the UK from the EU might impact decision-making in uh, Brussels. That's a topic for uh, another day. But what's clear is that the UK's withdrawal from the EU has impacted the implementation of competition law in the UK. And that's been most evident, I think, in the field of merger control. You've been among those uh, agency heads and others calling for a more interventionist, muscular merger enforcement. And under your watch, the CMA has challenged a significant number of transactions, over 30 since the Brexit vote compared with relatively few beforehand. Some of those were transactions that were approved by other agencies, uh, including the European Commission and the US agencies. And some were transactions that at least many thought weren't likely to be reviewed by the CMA because they didn't at first sight have an obvious impact uh, in the UK. When during your decade at the CMA, did you start to think that maybe something needed to be done in the field of merger control and perhaps the pendulum had uh, swung too far towards a, a permissive approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as you say, I've been quite vocal in this debate, but I think there are many other people with similar views. So if you think about the academic debate uh, in economics has moved quite a lot on merger control the last 10 years. There have been quite a few studies, quite a few books, which I think quite convincingly have shown that merger uh, under enforcement has been a problem and it's still a problem in, in, in the US economy, in the European economy. Secondly, uh, I mean, obviously, there's a new leadership in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, Lena Khan, Jonathan Cantor, again, have been very articulate in explaining their concerns about merger and their enforcement in the previous decade. So I would say we are certainly not uh, a lone voice. I mean, and personally, for me, what is really important when you do roles like mine is to constantly challenge yourself and do sort of ex-post uh, studies in merger control. You know, in a sense, we merger control is, as you know very well, is, is prospective. You're trying to work out whether there's a problem or not with a particular transaction. So I think it's very important to try to do systematic studies. You know, we did a study on entry and expansion, so barriers to enter and expansion, where we looked at 
previous decisions and see whether we've been too optimistic about that, which we realized we, we, we were. Uh, we did a retrospective study on, on digital mergers. So again, we looked at the way we had taken decisions and we concluded that certain things had to be done differently. Last year, we did another study on vertical mergers. So I think there, there is an element of, of checking what you have done in the previous five or 10 years. And because you, know, you can look at sectors, you can look at markets, you can look at particular industries and see whether things are in the right place or not. And that's certainly something I, I say quite frequently to my fellow heads, both privately and publicly. That I think it is quite important. And I think it's important for agencies to be open about possible previous mistakes in the sense I think we all need to learn from that. And certainly the overall environment of our merger control 10, 15 years ago was quite different from what it is now, particularly on, on, on digital mergers. So I think that has been a, a, an important element. The other element, as, as you know, and, and some of, uh, of the listeners will know, is that in, in the UK, the core of merger control is this phase two process where the decisions are taken by an independent uh, decision makers that are appointed by the government to a panel. And that system has many advantages, which is the decision makers are a mix of skills. Some of them are experts in competition policy, others are not experts. And so it's quite important for us as an agency to have merger guidelines, but also to do these studies because it's quite important when advising the decision makers um, of whether there were some biases or some mistakes in the past that need to be corrected. So it's a, it's a combination of elements. I think it's a, it's a bit of a never-ending story. Uh, I still feel a bit of anxiety that we're not quite in the right place, but certainly I, I feel we're in a better place than we were uh, five, six years ago when I started this job. So there's a lot to unpack there, Andrea. It's interesting you refer to the, um, the new progressive leadership in the US, which obviously have uh, said a lot about the need for greater intervention in merger control, but haven't to date really had as, as much success as I think you have had in, in bringing cases uh, and having them uh, upheld in the courts. You referred to, to the independent panel, and it's interesting that this more interventionist approach has occurred without any real change to the, uh, to the underlying law. You obviously issued new uh, guidelines. The leadership, by and large, has stayed the same at the CMA. You're subject to uh, the government's decision as to who to appoint to the independent panels that run the phase two cases. And you have appeal. You have judicial re review in the form of the CAT, although it hasn't perhaps been as intrusive in uh, the field of merger control as it has been elsewhere. So with all that in mind, how did you affect and orchestrate this more interventionist policy given the constraints that, uh, that you're subject to? In our system, the merger guidelines are quite important. So that was a very specific project where we tried to go back quite forensically to uh, where we were in 2010 what we learned since and, and update quite substantially the, the guidelines, particularly when looking at dynamic competition, dynamic mergers, some of the probably what we felt were the, the kind of biases in, uh, um, in, in merger control. The, the other part of it is that there's a kind of merger remedies discussions. Again, as you know very well, 
it's a fairly important element of the decisions on, on mergers because a lot of these complex mergers that in the end when they were blocked uh, they get blocked because the, the remedies on the table are deemed insufficient and and again the uk agency has is a long history of evaluating merger remedies we have a pretty substantial report that we update every two or three years. So again, there's a big learning process there, which again, to be honest, I inherited, I really liked, and I kept building on it. And if you go on our website today and look at our uh, current version of it, I think it's quite sophisticated by international standards in terms of thinking through all the options and things that worked or didn't work. So I would say that there wasn't really a silver bullet. It was more about trying to make sure the external debate was part of the CMA. We had, uh, you know, multiple speakers speaking to the panel, speaking to us about, uh, you know, we, I think we had Lina Khan way before she was appointed, speaking to the panel, among many others. And then, as I said, it's very much this step-by-step approach of, of learning from, from the past. And, you know, it is quite interesting, you know, you go and look at decisions like um, Google Waze or Facebook uh, Instagram, which were uh, UK decisions at the time, because the the way the turnover played out, they were still done in in the UK, not in Brussels. And, um, you know, they were very naive decisions. And obviously, with hindsight, we'd probably say incorrect decisions. So uh, we've traveled quite, quite far over the last 10 years. I mean, interestingly, I mean, if you look at the actual intervention rate, it's still very low. You know, we only interfere with probably around 2% of the mergers we, uh, we are aware of in the UK. So we're still talking about very small numbers. And, and you mentioned, you know, cases we blocked that were approved by others. But again, it's more the exception rather than the rule. When you look at our actual experience over the last year and a half, of working in parallel to the US agencies and particularly to the European Commission, the vast majority of decisions are the same. And then there are some uh, decisions where we end up in a different place for, you know, for, for good reasons. But again, I think the important message is that we, we don't intervene massively in mergers and uh, most of our decisions are similar to others. And then there are a few cases every year which obviously become quite important for the debate among the experts, but uh, uh, from a quantity point of view, these are uh, fairly limited cases. So Brexit was about uh, several things. It was about taking back control and arguably the CMA's uh, a poster boy or poster girl for taking back control. Uh, it was also about making the UK an attractive, light-touch place for uh, companies around the world to do business. Have you got any pushback from uh, government. You work very closely with um, the Treasury and at least one government department. Have they been critical in any way? No, not really. I mean, I think obviously we've had a period of political instability, so I've had my fair share of of ministers and and different, obviously different ministers have slightly different views. If you think about productivity and growth, which at the end of the day, we all know in the medium to long term is what really makes a difference in terms of the wealth of nations. Um, you know, merger control is really important because if you want to keep these markets competitive and give chances to uh, entrants to come in and expand, you can't really have monopolies or really tight oligopolies. So that's the kind of activity we, we carry out. And so the vast majority of politicians are very supportive of tough merger control. 
there obviously are some specific transactions where there is very uh, significant political and media lobbying in the UK, like in every other country. And it's always described as some, you know, great merger for the country from a strategic point of view or investment or whatever. I mean, again, when you look at the exposed studies, very often that's not really what you see. And the problem there is, you know, competition authorities need to take the long-term view in the interest of consumers. Politicians sometimes, uh, you know, work through short political cycles. And so that's, I think, where you really get the value of independent competition authorities. I mean, the UK historically, uh, as politicians have really protected the independence of, of the competition authorities in merger control, and that has really been the case during my tenure. So in that sense, I felt, and you know, as you know, we, as I was saying, we have essentially double independence because you have an independent board and an independent panel. So I think the UK actually on merger control is in a pretty good place institutionally. You were very candid in um, describing some prior decisions of the CMA as being naive, I think was the word you used. Uh, the European Commission has been a bit less self-critical do you think there are any cases decided by the European Commission uh, that you think should have been decided differently? And as you're getting into your final weeks, is there any advice you'd give them as to how to avoid uh, making similar mistakes in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's great enough for me to criticize other agencies. I mean, I think, you know, the European Commission plays a massive role, obviously, in, in global merger control. And, and in many ways, I think it's quite interesting to take a slightly longer term view, which is that if you think about the US, uh, merger control policy has changed very significantly over the last 10 years, depending on the, on the administrations. And there are clearly uh, you know, political appointments and political mandates. The European Commission, in many ways, is much more stable. So they find themselves in a position where you know, 10 years ago, everyone was criticizing the European Commission for being too interventionist and other people criticizing them and saying, well, they're not being sufficient interventionist compared to the US and others. So I think, you know, we need to take the long-term view. I mean, what I would say is that I certainly find it very useful to do these exposed studies and look at transactions because I generally, you know, I have anxieties about particular decisions we've taken, but very often I don't know whether they were the right ones or not. So I really like the idea that we get external consultants to just to spend time digging into, you know, a lot of these markets are, you know, they're public companies, you look at share prices, you look at profitability, you look at what the executives are saying in the 10K statement. I mean, there's a lot of information that you can use to assess after three, five, seven years, whether particular transactions were the right ones or not. And again, it's not going to be scientific precision because you know it's never a perfect counterfactual but i think it's quite useful so yeah my advice to the european commission and other agencies that i think it's useful to do that to look at decisions exposed to look at uh, decisions on remedies i mean obviously the european commission and the u.s agencies have taken some very very big decisions in highly concentrated markets in, in the last 10 years some cases clearing transactions more often than not accepting partial divestments. And I think it's useful, would be useful to understand whether, you know, we think these were the right decisions or not, because at the end of the day, 
And there's a lot of learning there for very similar uh, cases going in front of them or us in the coming years. You've spoken, Andrea, about international cooperation. We've seen a couple of instances of uh, the CMA reaching decisions that were different from those reached by other agencies. Do you view that as something that's undesirable and agencies should work to avoid, or just reasonable people reaching different views on, on the same facts? Yeah, I personally am quite relaxed about it in the sense that I think it's important that agencies ultimately take the right decisions for consumers in their jurisdictions. And, and as you know, agencies speak quite frequently with one another. Um, and um, in many cases, it's quite natural to end up in a similar place if the markets are global or the facts are very similar. In a number of cases, the facts are not the same. There are more problems in jurisdictions than others, so it's quite understandable you end up in a different place. But also, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's a judgment about the level of risk you want to accept. So particularly when complex remedies packages on what are tricky transactions are presented to agencies, um, you know, you've got to take the right view for your consumers because essentially you are taking a lot of risk on behalf of consumers uh, and very often consumers don't even know that you're doing that. And, you know, we are in a world of high inflation where there are very significant pressures on cost of living. You take the wrong decision. I mean, it's great for the shareholders of the emerging companies, but consumers are going to pay for many years. You know, we blocked the Sainsbury Asda merger a couple of years ago. And, you know, we're in a world now of cost of living pressures. I mean, I thought it was the right decision then, but probably even more so now. And I think when I look at the, you know, how important it is to keep these core markets competitive, and if you look at energy, um, you know, there are some markets that obviously are very, very critical uh, for, I mean, for productivity and growth, but also for cost of living. And these are big decisions on some of these markets. And a lot of these markets are highly concentrated globally. So almost by definition, every new merger coming in front of, of us are, are going to be really tricky, tricky cases. You look at telecoms, you look at energy, food markets, etc. Let me turn from merger control to antitrust, where your tenure will be remembered, among other things, for the excessive pricing cases that you brought, um, particularly in the pharmaceutical sector. Are you concerned about the precedent these cases set? Do you worry about a slippery slope to regulation with antitrust authorities uh, deciding what the right price should be and intervening if they think it's gotten too high? No, not at all, because in many ways, I mean, these are complex cases, very long decisions, so most people can talk about this case without having read the decisions, but the, the facts are very extreme in these cases. So we're talking about situations where essentially pharma companies exploited the regulatory loopholes to increase prices by, you know, 3,000%, 10,000%. In a number of these cases, there is an element of pay for delay as well, so they're not simply pure excessive pricing cases. So, so no, I, I don't really worry about it. And in many ways, we, um, you know, the first one that was litigated didn't go particularly well for us because the tribunal uh, remitted the kind of the excessive pricing part of the case back to us, taking, I would say, a fairly 
well, I would say a very cautious view on, on, on the law in these cases. So given where we are, uh, it's pretty clear that the bar is high and stays high. It's just that these cases are so extreme that they are just way, way uh, beyond the, the bar. So more generally, you know, we had lots of pharma cases during my tenure in antitrust, and I was, I'm very happy. I mean, all of these cases are essentially being litigated now, so we'll see in the next few years what the tribunal uh, thinks about it. But, you know, pay-for-delay cases when the European Commission and, and the CMA and the OFT at the time started doing them, it was pretty clear to me, I, I did my PhD on, on competition in pharma, so it's a, it's a market I know reasonably well, and it was pretty clear to me that clearly there were issues with these type of behaviors, and now the law is clearly there. I mean, it took more than 10 years for the law to catch up with the economics in that space, but so I, I think my hope is the tribunal is, is going to agree with us, and in a few years' time, people won't really worry too much about these cases because it will be seen as fairly extreme behavior, the law will be clear, but it's not going to massively change the way we're going to do antitrust enforcement. Andre, you touch on uh, judicial review. At times, the CMA leadership um, has voiced criticism, or at least has been interpreted as voicing criticism of the role played by lawyers and suggested it should be made harder uh, to appeal CMA uh, decisions. And on the other side of the debate, as you know, some lawyers have said, particularly in the field of uh, merger control, where the standard is, is a high one, higher than the standard that the European Commission is subject to when it goes to uh, Luxembourg to defend prohibition uh, decisions. Do you think we have the right level of uh, judicial scrutiny, the right standards for appeal, or should it be made harder for um, propellants to prevail before the cat? I mean, obviously, this is something that's been debated for a long time. I, I mean, as an economist, I try to take a bit of a long-term view when look at the facts. So I think on, on merger control, the UK has a pretty good system end-to-end -end in the sense that the only way your merger is blocked in the UK is essentially if you, if you fail to convince decision makers at phase one that there shouldn't be a problem. Then you have the core of the assessment, which is the six or eight months in front of a panel, you know, very significant transparency, direct access to decision makers, fairly forensic assessment of the evidence. And then if you lose there, i.e. if the case is prohibited by the CMA, then you can appeal to the CAT under judicial review. And to be honest, I think anyone who reads the judgments from the CAT on merger control would agree that there is a pretty intense review. I mean, again, people would say that we should spend weeks and weeks on that. This is done in a few days, uh, mainly on the papers. So I think end-to-end -end merger control is in a good place, i.e. companies have very strong rights of defense, but these things finish. So, you know, within a year plus, you know the outcome. And I think it's really important for consumers and competitors. I think antitrust is still not the right place because the end-to-end -end in the UK is, has a lot of duplication and it takes too long. So we still have a system where we as the CMA take too long to reach our decisions because we're internalizing the scrutiny, the sort of full merits uh, appeal at the CAT, which is 
you know, number of weeks of trials, uh, fairly extensive uh, expert evidence by economists, by executives, etc. And then the, the cut phase is quite intense. Uh, it's quite a lot of work pre-trial, trial, and then um, you know a number of these cases get appealed to the Court of Appeal and potentially to the Supreme Court. So it takes a very long time uh, with quite a lot of duplication. And so obviously if you are a lawyer just working for the companies, you think, well, that's right, you know, these are big decisions, it's really important we do that. If you do my job, I receive lots of complaints and a lot of valid complaints by companies, by politicians, by members of the public. And the, the proportion of cases we open and conclude is too low, given the level of complaints we receive. So that's a real, real cost of the system. So I think there must be a way where you you reduce the cost of every single case by 20, 30%, and you increase the number of cases we do by 20, 30%. The tribunal, uh, it's a new president, uh, Marcus uh, Smith, who is interested in trying to eliminate these inefficiencies. So for instance, he's now planning, he's trying to implement a slightly different way of doing the the litigation uh, on the pharma cases by forcing the, the CMA and the appellants to agree more pre-trial so that the trial can be shorter and more focused, uh, which I think is great. It's a great initiative. I mean, in practice, what we're seeing now is that it does create more work pre-trial. So we just we need to, to do it a number of times and see the net cost and benefits. But it's absolutely the right thing to do, I think, to try to be to experiment a bit and work on variants. And so, so in that sense, I feel quite optimistic that there is a shared desire to improve the regime. But obviously, there are lots of smart people who um, you know, have an interest in keeping friction in the, in the system. And so it is quite complicated. So every time you know, the tribunal tries to get the parties to agree on something, there are many rounds of submissions. And so, uh, I mean, these things are complicated and they're difficult in every jurisdiction. So personally, I would say at the end of my tenure, the UK system as a whole is not in a bad place. So I think we are in a world of incremental smart improvements if we can. And certainly we are at the CMAN trying to uh, be more efficient around antitrust because it's, well, a lot of it is about digital transformation and trying to be uh, to be smarter about the technology and the way we do things, particularly with some very big digital cases that we're doing at the moment. Thanks, Andrea. Before we get to uh, digital, just a question about one of the core activities of an antitrust agency, uh, which relates to identifying and prosecuting cartels. Uh, was that an area that you were alluding to when you were slightly regretting some level of under-enforcement. Some, uh, some view the CMA's output as being slightly underwhelming with respect to um, cartel detection and fines. Do you agree with that critique? Is there anything that can be done? Yeah, so I would split it between civil and criminal. So on civil, I would say our outcomes are okay, but they could be better. So first of all, before 1st of January 2021, we would only do domestic cases. And so, I mean, to be honest, we see civil cart cartel enforcement as very core to what we do. So we 
pretty much everything that comes in, we try to translate into a case. So it's not that we had amazing leads on civil cartels and we just didn't do them. Uh, a lot of the leads are very small cases, very localized. And one of the challenges we have is we struggle to flex the system. So sometimes small cartels, we still spend quite a lot of time and money doing them. And so that's a bit of an issue about cost and benefit. The fines, we're changing our finding guidelines. Our fines are quite low by international standards on cartels. I think, again, we suffer from a couple of judgments. Uh, on. I mean, we, we in, there was a period, I mean, less so recently, but there was a period that, as you might remember, where the OFT in particular, almost every time they went to the cut on fines, the, cut, the fines were reduced. And that kind of built in a sense that the fines can't be really high in our system, which, to be honest, I don't agree with. But we are slowly trying to get to uh, a level which is a bit more comparable to other countries. Obviously, we will have some international cartels going forward. We have a couple we've opened uh, because of Brexit. So that will have uh, an impact. I mean, the issue with civil cartel is that it's it's very resource intensive in this day and age. And so there's a big, I would say, operational side to it, which we are working on, and I'm sure my successor will, will work on, which is really to try to deal with very large amount of evidence, digital evidence, and so on and so forth. On criminal, I mean, obviously, we haven't had live cases in a while. Um, I mean, these cases are very tough. You know, the the you know the serious fraud office, which is pretty competent enforcer in the UK, has uh, struggled. The courts, uh, you know, it's it's tough to take these criminal uh, cases in in the UK courts. We have had a couple of difficult experiences with juries on criminal cartel cases, like uh, other enforcers. It's an area where very aware of as an area we need to keep working on because again criminal cartel enforcement can be really powerful uh, and certainly that's something we have underutilized in recent years. Thanks Andrea. Let's turn now to the uh, to the major digital platforms. Um, you've been critical for some time of the big tech giants but hadn't brought that many cases until recently. You've seen a delay in the legislation needed to establish the digital markets unit and you will have doubtless have heard some of the slightly mixed messages coming from government. Looking back, do you wish you'd done things slightly differently? And looking forward, are you optimistic about the CMA's ability to carve a distinctive role in this space? So I'm quite optimistic about the role of the CMA in digital going forward, because we've made a major investment in skills. And I think if you look at our two big digital digital market studies, the one on online advertising and the one on mobile ecosystems, I think are pretty powerful pieces of work and have been you know, widely praised internationally. I mean, again, I think it's important to remember that we've only had a year and a half since uh, the end of the transition period on Brexit. So we couldn't do the digital cases until you know, 18 months ago. So our strategy has always been to a twin track of working closely with government to get the right legislation in place and doing our own cases. At the beginning of 2021, we spent quite a lot of time on trying to help government uh, because we thought there was enough support for a quick 
introduction of the legislation pretty much on a, on a par with the DMA in Europe. And unfortunately, that's not happened. And, you know, given the uh, recent changes in government now, you know, there's clearly going to be a, a material delay. Um, and so over the last few months, we've pivoted quite significantly onto cases. And we now have, you know, a number of active cases. And some of these cases have progressed quite quickly. So, for instance, the Google Privacy Sandbox, we already have pretty significant commitments from Google that we're monitoring. So I think, look, it's an area we put a lot of time and effort in. I think we're in a good place. It's really unfortunate that the UK legislation is now going to come after the DMA. Uh, but again, you know, well done to the European Parliament, which managed to legislate very quickly into the European Commission. I think it's been a very, uh, very successful. At the same time, obviously, there is no legislation in the US. There is... The, you know, there are a number of other countries that are also struggling with the legislation. So I think the UK is now in, in, in a pack with others. And so for the, certainly for the next few months, the, we'll keep focusing on cases. We have a big pipeline of, of interesting cases. And the main constraint at this point really is resources. I mean, we are pretty much maxed out at this point. We have a very big portfolio uh, today on digital cases, merger cases. And so um, so there's a clear strategy. And obviously the new leadership, you know, Marcus Bockering coming in and the new CEO will take a view on, on the relative proportions of, you know, digital cases where let's say more bread and butter cost of living cases. And that's really the role of the, of the board and the leadership. You clearly think it makes sense to have parallel investigations of cartels with the European Commission and other agencies and parallel investigations of mergers with the European Commission and other agencies. Do you think it makes sense to have parallel investigations of the same types of conduct in the digital sphere as the European Commission and other agencies, given that the solution to an EC investigation, for example, is likely to be applied in the UK as well. Do you take account of what other agencies are looking at and seek to focus on things different from them rather than just to duplicate what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, so obviously we're doing that and we're talking quite extensively. I I just don't know whether the the assumption is correct. So I I don't know whether the large tech companies would extend changes to their business practices that might agree with the European Commission to the UK because I mean, it seems to me a number of these companies uh, see large national markets as quite separate. And so I think there's going to, it's going to, we're going to end up with quite a lot of fragmentation. So if you think about it, there is no indication by the large platforms that they are going to uh, apply to the US, for instance, some of the changes to the business practice they will implement because of DMA. So they might or they might not. And if they don't apply them to the US or to Japan or to Australia, I'm not sure they will apply them to the UK. Now, if three years from now, we realize that every time uh, the big platforms make changes in Europe, they make them to the UK as well without any intervention from the CMA, I think then the CMA will take a different view. But at the moment, I think it's completely up for grabs what these platforms will do in the UK market. And so we need to protect UK consumers um, so we'll see. We'll see how these things play out over the next two or three years, which I think is going to be you know, a very, very important uh, period. I mean, I think the DMA has been a game changer in terms of, I mean, clearly forcing big platforms to make significant changes to their business model in a very large geography. 
so things will clearly be different, but exactly how things will play out, I think, is uh, anyone's guess at this point. Thanks, Andrea. Before we turn to our quick-fire questions at the end, a question about sustainability. During your term, one of the big debates in antitrust was whether competition law enforcement should be evolved in some way to take account of environmental considerations. What's your view on that debate? It's a strange one for us because the CMA has a reputation for being a very open agency. You know, if people contact us, we talk to people, we talk to people all the time. And no one, not a single company during my whole tenure has come to me and saying, we would like to do something great for the environment and we're worried about what you might do about it. So, you know, we're published guidance. We're very clear in our annual plan that we're very supportive of the government focus on net zero. And so we haven't really seen in practice any kind of impediments to these agreements. And, you know, historically, the CMA and the UFT before it have always been pretty pragmatic on these things. So I, I certainly share the theoretical concern that we might be preventing, you know, useful agreements, but we have really struggled to see any concrete examples. So you're open for business and if companies have anything to talk yeah. about, they know where to go. Absolutely. Very good. So now some quick fire questions. First one. So what was your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? In terms of achievements, I would say setting up the data and technology team, probably before most of the other agencies, expanding into Scotland with a big office in Edinburgh, making the CMA less kind of London centric and more uh, UK wide. And then I think what we were talking about the sort of Brexit transition and the role the CMA has globally uh, today compared to where we were five, six years ago. I mean, in terms of regrets, it's a bit what I was touching upon earlier, which is that I received lots of emails and letters from you know, sensible members of the public and politicians and others complaining about lack of competition in certain sectors or certain behaviors. And my ability to actually open investigations and fix things is uh, somehow limited. So we have to be reasonably selective because a lot of our cases become fairly big processes in terms of the resources they consume and the length of time it takes to finish them. And so that's kind of where the system is. I think the system should really focus on um, more cases and trying to run these things more on the 95% precision rather than 99.9%, which is a bit the way things are at the moment. So that's a good segue to my next question, Andrea. If there was one thing about UK competition regime that you change, what would it be? Yeah, so it's exactly the kind of end-to-end process for competition enforcement. So literally from the day a complaint comes to the agency to when it's finished at the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court or the CAT. It takes too long and it's too costly for the complainants and in many cases doesn't even start. So the way you described it, uh, if I understand well, you changed something about judicial review and that process which um, would have a knock-on effect to the way in which you, the CMA, handled investigations that would in turn free up resource for there to be more for there to be more cases. Yeah. Looking forward, what do you think are the top three priorities for your successor? So I would say number one, um, to keep a strong core of, of quality people in the CMA. 
you know, we are part of the civil service. Um, last year there was a pay freeze. This year, according to media reports, we can only pay people two or three percent more in a world of ten percent inflation. So we are losing people to the private sector. The pay gap is very large at the moment. So I, I, I think my successors really need to focus well, do what whatever they can on that. Second. I think is really the regulation of digital platforms. So trying to get the, the legislation in place, continue the cases so that the outcomes improve. And third is a bit what we've been discussing, which is both on the competition side, but also on the consumer enforcement regime. There are these great ideas and reforms that the government is minded to implement, but hasn't quite found the time for. So I think my successor should really focus on, well, their conversations with government to 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 land these changes, and presumably you hope your successors maintain the same uh, approach towards mergers uh, as you've done, and the same scepticism of consolidation. That's my hope. I mean, obviously the government uh, will appoint the new CEO, but you know, appointed a, a, a very good chair. We're starting in September, so yeah, that's that's my hope. So, what will you miss about the job? Yeah, so the first thing I will miss is, is really the impact that I mean, I have, you know, more than 900 people. The CMA is, is quite impactful in a number of areas. We have a large portfolio of cases. And in a sense, in my role, you have a sense that you can mobilize resources and solve problems. The second thing I will miss is the, the, the sort of web of partnerships that we have at all levels, both internationally and domestically, so both at my level, at case team levels, and, and various levels of seniority. Um, and that, again, has been really important in achieving results. And then thirdly, obviously, it's a, it's a lot of the people I've been working with very closely for a number of years, and in that sense, the CMA is, a, is really a great organization. So you're almost up. Uh, leading the CMA must be a hard act to follow. Can you tell us anything about your plans for the future? Yeah, so I will Well, we'll go back to the private sector. Uh, as you know, I was a partner in an economic consulting firm many, many years ago. Uh, so I'm going to go back to that kind of world. I have to go through a fairly complex uh, conflict uh, process, which needs to be uh, approved finally by the prime minister on, on the advice of a committee for, for people at my level exiting the civil service. So it's going to take a number of weeks. Um, and so hopefully I will be able to make an announcement in September, October about what I'm going to do next. And finally, Andrea, aside from sharing your birthday with your host, can you tell us something that's not widely known about yourself? Yeah, I'm an avid sort of a fiction reader. I when I, when I was growing up, I was uh, you know I was reading lots of fiction and lots of news and current affairs. And what I found in this job is that you are you have to consume so much in terms of news and current affairs that the only thing I can now relax with is really trying to you know have a good book and um, the, and really try to switch off a bit from the kind of social media. Uh, and uh, news cycles. And I, I was just watching recently on YouTube uh, Nicola Sturgeon interviewing uh, Shimamanda Adichie at the Edinburgh Book Film Festival. And I thought it was so great to have a leading politician who is actually reading a lot and talking about the books, um, the books she likes. 
Thank you, Andrea, for a fascinating discussion. We wish you well in the future and look forward to welcoming you back on a future podcast to get your reflections on the evolution of UK competition law under the tenure of your successors. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Hope to welcome you back to our next podcast.